How we doing, Mosaic? Yeah, <laughs> good, good. It's good to hear. Uh, if you're guests, you don't know who I am. My name's Aaron. I'm one of the pastors here, and uh, just stoked that you're here with us this morning. And you're here for a good morning. We are wrapping up a series that we've been in for the last three weeks. And if you were here last week, uh, you know my hats off to you for coming back. Last week, a message like last week's can be, oh, what we call a bit of a space maker, opening up some seats. Um, because it was kind of a hard message. In fact, I came across a quote this week um, that kind of sums up the sermon content in like 140 characters or less. Uh, but a great modern theologian by the name of Bill Murray. And uh, he said this. He said, everything happens for a reason. Sometimes the reason is that you're stupid and make bad decisions. Uh, that was a sermon, basically. And we talked about choices and the importance of choices. And uh, oftentimes the situations we find ourselves in are not because God even wants you there. God is not under every rock making every little thing that happens in your life happen to you. Oftentimes it's because we make bad choices or other people make very bad choices that affect our lives. And so we talked about, you know, when it comes to your choices, the decisions you make can't be, could not be more important. Or they shape who you are becoming. They shape the impact that you're having on this world. Um, and we talked about, you know, took a step further and said, you know, when it comes to this whole Christian faith thing, um, you can sign on the dotted line, you can come to church every single week, but if you never apply anything we talk about, um, then you might as well not even believe. And um, we even took it a, a step further than that, and uh, kind of a strong word, and, and suggested, you know, if you're not going to ever apply this or open up the scriptures and let it read your life and affect your lifestyle, truth be known, if you can, um, you might as well just be an atheist. Um, because at least then you can, consider, you can continue in your disobedience and at least not feel bad about it. So very feel-good message. Uh, you know, warms the heart this holiday season. Um, but a message like that, so a message like that, I felt a little bit conflicted because a message like that can create a lot of inner tension and it can create in, in people um, kind of this sense of like when you walk out of church, like with this feeling like, wow, I suck at life. You know, I went to church feeling bad and I left feeling worse. Thank you very much, Pastor. Uh, you're welcome. Um, but I think a message like that is so, it's important. And, and I wanted us to sit on the tension for like a week because uh, it's true. Um, but for those of us who, well, for all of us, um, that know the, the story of Jesus and, and what we've been, the story we've been invited to, we know that there's, there's more to the story than that, right? Because a message like that raises uh, some important questions. And uh, questions that are, you know, they're as important as they are, both personal and perhaps for some of us in the room today, uh, painful. And, and the question is, so, okay, um, what, what then if I feel like I really don't have enough faith? Right, if the choices that I make reveal what I really believe. What if I look at the choices that I've made in my lifetime and what's there is, is maybe, I mean, maybe I, I don't believe in God like I thought I believed in God. All right, what do I do when I, I don't feel like I trust God enough? What do I do when I feel like I don't have enough, enough faith? Right, and for some of you might be here that, there this morning. Um, if you're not there, uh, chances are you'll be there again at some point, you know, and when it's quiet and the lights are off and your phone's put away, you're not on your iPhone, I know it's a rare instance, but it happens every now and then, right, the whispers keep on coming, right, the whisper that tells you, you're a joke, what in the world are you doing going to church, right, there are two kinds of people in this world, there's faithful and unfaithful, and we both know which one you are, so why even try? Who are you trying to fool? 
And so to, to wrestle with this this morning, I want to take a play right out of Paul's playbook and do something that we've seen him do a couple times in Galatians. And I want to look at the person of, of Abraham. Right? Because Abraham is presented in the scriptures as being a champion of faith. Right? And so if there is a God, and if there is some kind of saving, life-changing faith, well then, if anybody knows what that looks like, uh, it's got to be Abraham. This is, what, this is what Paul actually writes about Abraham uh, in Romans 4. Listen to just the glowing terms in which he's presented. This is what it says, starting in verse 1. It says, What then shall we say that Abraham, our forefather, discovered in this matter? If, in fact, Abraham was justified by works, by his life, by what he does, well, then he had something to boast about. But not before God, of course. But what does Scripture say? Scripture says that Abraham believed God, and it was credited to him as righteousness. We are not torturing your children. Just so you know, I promise. That's not what's going on over there. (laughs) All right, continuing. Uh, He is our father in the sight of God, in whom he believed. The God who gives life to the dead and calls into being things that that we're not. And then listen to this. This is Abraham. Against all hope, Abraham... Uh, Abraham, in hope, believed, and so became the father of many nations, just as it had been said to him. Without weakening in his faith, he faced the fact that his body was as good as dead since he was about 100 years old, and that Sarah's womb was also dead. Yet he did not waver through unbelief regarding the promises of God, but was strengthened in his faith and gave glory to God, being fully persuaded that God had the power to do what he had promised. Right? What a spiritual stunt, huh? Listen to this. Against all hope, Abraham believed God without weakening in his faith. He did not waver through unbelief, but he was strengthened in his faith, being fully persuaded that God had the power to do what he had promised. Right? When we open up the New Testament, Abraham is presented as like this role model of faith, of what faith is supposed to look like. He's kind of just, kind of just presented as this champion of faith, but when we look at his life, what we actually find is that his faith oftentimes was not very impressive at all. Right? So in Genesis 12... We have this, this record of God coming to Abraham, right? And he pulls Abraham aside, and, and he says, Abraham, I want you to leave your home. I want to leave you, you to leave everything that you know and go to this place where I've called you. And there, I'm going to give you a son. You're going to be the father of many nations. And through you, I'm going to bless the world, right? Now, on the other side of the story, we know that that was Jesus that was coming in his lineage that was going to bless the world. Right, so God comes to him and says this, and I don't know about you, but that's like one of those like fork-in-the-road moments. We would think that this would be a life-changing moment. God coming to this man saying, I'm going to change the world through you. I'm going to bless the entire world through you. The world will never be the, the same because of what I'm going to do through your life. You'd think that'd be a game-changer, but in the very next episode, in the very next chapter, uh, Abraham and Sarah travel to Egypt, and we briefly hit on this before, but we'll look at it again because it's worth looking at. Right, and they're traveling through Egypt, and, and Abraham pulls his wife aside and says, Honey, you're a beautiful woman. Everybody knows that. And there are some powerful men in Egypt. And I just know that they're going to want you for their own. So here's what we're going to do. You're my sister. Right? If a powerful man wants you, he can have you. Just go with him. Right? We're brother, sister. That's what you're going to tell him. And then I live, and you live, and we'll figure it out on the other side. All right, just, just sidestep here. Does that sound like unwavering faith to you? Does it sound like... Abraham is all that convinced that God is going to make this promise come to fruition. I'm not convinced. But that's what they do. And they actually go through with it. And so, so uh, Pharaoh gives the Abraham sheep, cattle, camels, slaves, all sorts of good, goods. Right? But Pharaoh gets tipped off that this is not his sister. This is actually his wife. Right? And so he comes to Abraham, and he actually, what he says to Abraham is the exact same thing that God says to Eve 
after she's disobeyed. So the, the author of Genesis is being very deliberate here. Right? And the Pharaoh comes to him and says, what is this thing that you have done? Right? And in the story, in this particular moment, right, we find that Pharaoh, who's a pagan, who rejects God, uh, the Lord as God, worships a, a whole smorgasbord of other gods. But in this moment, he's more concerned with doing right than our man Abraham is. Right? Very, very interesting. Right? And we would think, now we would think, being exposed as the coward that he is in this moment, throwing his wife underneath the bus, that, that he'd learn from this. Right? Huge mistake. Like, just head slapper. You think, like, he would never make this mistake again. Surely his wife would let him know to make sure he never made this mistake again. But you fast forward to Genesis 20, and he doesn't do this just once. He does the exact same thing a second time. Does that sound like unwavering faith to you? I'm not convinced. All right, after 11 years, go on. After 11 years of not having a child, his wife comes to him, comes to Abraham and says, I'm not getting any younger. And I'm not even sure if I can have kids anymore. All right, so what I think you should do is you should just go sleep with our servant girl and have a child through her. Because it's obviously not happening through me. In this moment, what does Abraham do? Does he say, woman, how dare you suggest such a thing? We need to trust God. He has promised us this thing. Right? No. He says, well, that sounds pretty good. Let's do that. And he goes through with it. Right? And they actually, he actually gets Hagar uh, pregnant. And it's a total disaster. Another time, 13 years later, all right, God comes to Abraham again and he says, you're going to have a son through your wife this time. Right? The way uh, it was supposed to go. You're going to have a son. And what does Abraham say in this moment? Does he say, God, I believe you. Yeah, let's do this thing. Right? No, it tells us that he actually fell over laughing at God. Does that sound like a man who's full of faith, unwavering faith and believe in what God was going to do? No. Right? So he, he laughs, and then God goes to Sarah, tells her the exact same thing, says that this time next year you're going to have a kid. And she laughs under her breath. Right? And God goes to Abraham, he's right there, and he goes, why did Sarah laugh? And... <laughs> And then does Abraham man up and say, I'm sorry, this is just crazy. It's hard to believe. We both laughed. Does he man up and say, well, she didn't? No, no. He just sidesteps, doesn't say anything. Sarah's freaked out. She lies to God, says, I didn't laugh. And God goes, oh, yes, you did laugh. And they go back and forth. All the meanwhile, Abraham's just in the corner, right? Sulking in the corner, doesn't say a thing. Does this man sound like a guy with just incredible, outrageous faith? I don't think so. Right? In Abraham, we find a guy whose faith was so weak that he pimps out his wife, not once, but twice. Right? In Abraham, we find a man whose, whose faith is so weak that instead of waiting to fulfill God's promise uh, to have a son, um, goes and impregnates a servant girl instead. Right? In Abraham, we find a guy whose faith is so weak that God tells him, when God tells him he's going to do something in his life, he actually laughs out loud at God. All right, so what gives? This is our model for faith. Is Paul confused here? All right, now, we've got to remember, Paul was a rabbi. All right, so he grew up learning the Torah back and forth, left and right. He knew everything there was to know in the scriptures about Abraham, better, far better than you or I do. He knew it. He knew Abraham inside and out, backwards and forwards. All right, so what is Paul thinking? What is he, what is he trying to communicate to us here? All right, and to get there, I think we just have to take a second to just look at the world in which Abraham lived. When God came to him. Or you got to take into consideration, when God comes to Abraham, he doesn't have the Bible. Are you care to guess, like, how many of the Ten Commandments Abraham could recite by heart? 
zero. Right? They didn't exist yet. There are no Ten Commandments. There are no stories of this amazing God that have been passed down and preserved in the Scriptures. The story of Moses, Mount Sinai, uh, the giving of the law, the consecration of pre- the priests, right? David, his psalms, the sacrifices, all that stuff, that had not occurred yet. Right? And so Abraham is, is really oblivious in many ways. And he's born into a culture, an ancient culture that is um, brutal, it is superstitious, it is pagan. And at one point, Joshua actually writes this to the Israelites. He says, long ago, your forefathers, including Terah, the father of Abraham, lived beyond the river and worshipped other gods. This is his dad. Right? So in other words, Abraham was raised just like everybody else into a, a very pagan culture. Right? He did not like emerge from the womb singing worship songs. Right? There was nothing, he was not set apart by God in some miraculous way at a young age. Right? He was not particularly holy or religious. There's nothing, in fact, we're not given anything that's special about him that warrants the favor of God. It's just not there. And as far as we know, in Genesis 12, when Abraham and God meet face to face, and God says, I want you to go to this place. Right, this is, for all we know, this is the first time that, God is, that Abraham's ever come face to face with this living, personal God, the Lord, Yahweh. And he says, go from your country, go from your people, leave your father's household, and go to the land that I will show you. And here's, here's the key. This is what it says. It says, so Abram went, just as the Lord commanded, or just as the Lord had told him. Abram went. He responded and obeyed. See, Abraham, Abraham is not deliberate. He is deliberately not presented in the scriptures as this brilliant spiritual genius who innovated uh, ethical monotheism. Right? Instead, we look at Abraham, right? our hero, champion in the faith that we're to look to. And the Old Testament presents him as an average, ignorant, confused, superstitious, passive, and cowardly man. Right? He didn't know how in the world this was going to work. He was an old man, pushing 100 years old. His wife's 90. Right? And they're told they're going to have a son. And Viagra does not exist yet. Right? The only way this is happening is by God. He's totally dependent on God. And we're told that even in this place, he has doubt after doubt that God will actually do it. All right, but the beautiful thing that we find in Abraham's story is that Abraham doesn't get to play the hero of his story. Right, the, what God does in Abraham's life, it's not dependent on Abraham's certainty because there's nowhere in Abraham's life where he says, Sarah, we just need to have faith. We just need to trust God. God is going to come through for us. We just need to claim this promise. Never does that. Instead, we find doubt and failure and confusion. Right, the, story, the hero of his story is not Abraham. The hero of this story is God. Right, in fact, Abraham's dad, Terah, who worshipped other gods, he probably... I mean, it's very possible he had more faith than Abraham did, right? He just worshiped other gods, the wrong gods, right? False gods, right? The only thing Abraham did, did right was worshiping the right God, right? And here's what we find in Abraham's story, right? This is, this is your tweet-worthy quote, ready? <laughs> find that it's better to put a little faith in a big God than to put big faith in a little God, have you ever thought about the fact that Jesus says, you know what, you just need faith the size of a mustard seed? Isn't that a weird thing to say? Because that's, that's all it takes. Right? The issue is not the size of your faith. The issue is the size of your God. 
Right? And so Paul keeps coming back to this for us. And he keeps beating this drum. Right? And, he, and he says, look, the church is, is not a community for the spiritually elite. It's not a community of the religiously devout or the guiltless few. All right, we the church, we're, we're, we're a ragamuffin community of forgiven sinners. Loved and redeemed by a God who gives us second chance after second chance after second chance to all of his prodigal children. And I am one of them. All right, if you came to church and you're looking for a pastor who never screws up and fails, <laughs> you're the wrong church. All right, a year and a half ago, we had a leadership meeting over at the South Mill over on 48th Street. Right, all volunteers, myself. And I'm sicker than a dog. I'd rather be in bed, but there's work to do, trying to have a good attitude, but I'm just miserably sick. Right, and so you've got to know, like, there's, there's really structured people, you know, over on this side of the spectrum. I'm, like, way over here. I'm not a very structured person. I don't like structure. All right, and so when we have meetings with, like, volunteers and leadership teams, right, there's some things I want to get done, but it is not structured. I'll tell you that much. So this particular day, one of the people, one of the other volunteers brought a list of things. And we just started working through his very structured meeting. And it was fine. We were getting things done. And Brian Thomas, who was our Mosaic Kids director at the time, wonderful guy, serving behind the scenes. Right? Kids ministry people don't get a lot of props along the way. Totally wonderful guy. He, just, he says, man, finally a meeting that's structured. Right? So I just bite my lip. <laughs> it's like, you're the pastor, you're the pastor, you're the pastor. We continue, keep doing stuff. And he says this like two more times, right? And I am just miserable. I don't want to be there to begin with this day. Uh, so I just, the third time I just snapped. And I said, Brian, if you say that again, I'm going to punch you in the head. <laughs> Not a very pastoral thing to say. Um, and the, the funny thing is, everybody else around the table knows me well enough to know that I have a propensity to be an idiot. And to do stupid things at times that I don't mean to do, um, but I just do. And, but Brian was not one of those people. He was brand new to the team, <laughs> pretty new to this church. Right? And so it created this super awkward moment. I don't think he said anything for the next hour. Uh, it was bad. Right? So he left, and I called him after the meeting. I was like, dude, I'm so sorry. <laughs> uh, I promise I'm not going to punch you in the head. And uh, it was not right of me to say that. Right? And, and the truth is, like, when I became a Christian, I didn't stop needing grace. Right? And when I became a pastor, I definitely did not stop needing grace. I need grace day after day after day. Right? And if you're looking for a community where no one screws up, right? where, where the need for grace is a thing of the past, where flawless religious duty and moral perfectionism reign supreme, uh, then you're looking for, at the wrong church here. And uh, you're looking at the wrong God. Right? I love what Martin Luther said. He said, God's grace is given to heal the spiritually sick, right? not to decorate spiritual heroes. I love that. And Paul keeps coming back to this over and over and over again. He, looked, he says, look, God is not looking for your perfection. Jesus was perfect so that you don't have to be. All right, so put your faith in him. Trust him. So I got some life equations for you to weigh as you're thinking about this, right? Life equations, these are just to help you out, Okay give you an example. So taxi. Taxi equals car minus privacy plus smell. Right? It's a life equation. Okay? So next one. Lawn darts plus flip-flops equals toes minus one. All right? I like this one. This is a, this is a story in my backyard. One rabbit plus one rabbit equals 40 rabbits. <laughs> one of my particular favorites, Long John Silvers equals seafood minus food plus shame. I got one more for you. 
How about this one? Uh, Jesus plus nothing equals everything. All right, this is the message of Galatians. Jesus plus nothing equals everything. God doesn't need your perfection. Right? He doesn't need your just perfect religious duty. Uh, honestly, he doesn't need anything from you. But you trust. Jesus is everything. Right, so Galatians chapter 3, I love this. He says this. He says, look, is it not obvious to you that persons who put their trust in Christ, not persons who put their trust in the law, right, or themselves, or their marriage, or their career, or their finances, or their security, their comfort, their wealth, those who put their trust in Christ are like Abraham, children of faith. It was all laid out beforehand in Scripture that God would set things right with non-Jews, that's us, by what? By faith. Scripture anticipated this in the promise to Abraham that all nations will be blessed in you. And he goes on in verse 13, he says, Christ redeemed us from that self-defeating, cursed life by absorbing it completely to himself. Do you remember the scripture that says, cursed is everyone who hangs on a tree? Well, that is what happened when Jesus was nailed to the cross. He became a curse and at that same time dissolved the curse. And now because of that, the air is cleared. And we can see that Abraham's blessing is available for us. And we are all able to receive God's life, uh, his life, his spirit, in and with us by what? By religious duty? No, by believing. Just the way Abraham received it. I love that. By believing just the way Abraham received it. And then how did Abraham receive that? Well, it was not sinlessly, I know that much, Right? He did not receive it without ever experiencing doubt, fear, or failure. We know that. In the face of all those things, the only thing he did right is that he ch- chose to put his faith in a big God. All right, Pastor Tim Keller, I, I love, he puts some, I have a man crush on Tim Keller. Um, he, uh, he puts this well. He talks about the Exodus, and, and in the New Testament, the Exodus is something that is used by all the New Testament writers as this metaphor, metaphorical thing um, to what God was going to do for the whole world eventually in Jesus. Right, and that was lead them out of slavery. Right, so he points to the Exodus in that moment right, where Pharaoh decides that you know, letting my whole workforce go is a bad idea, and he chases after him. Right, and God opens up the Red Sea, and it's this incredible miracle. And there's a wall of water on one side and a wall of water on the other side. And he says, look, in this moment, amongst all of God's people, the Israelites at this time, right, there was a variety of different reactions to what God was doing. Right, so some of them... We're like high-stepping, spiking the football, you know, like giving Pharaoh the wave, you know, as they pass through. You know, it's like, how do you like them apples? You know, look what our God can do. You know, I dare you to, to one-up that, right? Some of them were feeling really good about what was going on, right? But in this moment, undoubtedly, there are also uh, people who are having a far more timid response, right? Who are walking through those walls of water thinking, I'm going to die, I'm going to die, we're all going to die. Right, and then he makes the important point. He, he just says, look, right, not everybody had the same equal measure or quality of faith. Right, but every single one of them were equally saved. Right, and in this letter to the Galatians, we find that you know, what saves us is not, it's not the size of your faith. Right, and it's not even the quality of your faith. Right, it's, it's the object of your faith. Right, and there's a big difference. A big difference. Um, and my, some of you might say, you know, but Aaron, yeah, you don't know me. You, you don't know me? You don't know my story. If you did, you would not say that. 
right? Because if there is a God, uh, pretty sure he doesn't love me, right? Pretty sure he doesn't like me. And he could definitely never use someone like me. And I would suggest to you that you're dead wrong. You're dead wrong, right? Because the story of the Bible, the story of, of Abraham, our story in Jesus is, is one where we find that God is actually rather fond of loving and using people that the world deem undesirable. Right, any Muppets fans in the house? Muppets fans? Yeah, I love the Muppets. Grew up on Muppets. If you ever travel to D.C. and you get a chance to go to the Smithsonian, uh, you can see there the actual, the, the original Kermit the Frog. And uh, I grew up on Kermit the Frog. I love Kermit. He has, he's got quite a story. He did pretty well for himself. Left the swamp at a young age and his 3,200 brothers and sisters and went to Hollywood and brought a lot of joy and happiness to a lot of kids. Me too. He uh, starred in The Muppet Show, made guest appearances on Sesame Street, even sang an Academy Award-nominated song, uh, The Rainbow Connection, right? The lovers, the dreamers, and me. Yeah, I love it. But you know, uh, a little-known fact about the story of Kermit is, um, you know, Jim Henson, uh, if you're older, you definitely know that name. Uh, Jim Henson was the creator of Kermit uh, and the Muppets. And Kermit was birthed uh, out of Jim Henson just playing outside one day. And he looked over to the, the garbage heap outside their house, and he saw his mom's old green jacket. And she had thrown it away, tossed it out, it was old. Right? And he went over there and started playing with the jacket and started to craft and create what would become Kermit. And went and found a ping pong ball and cut it in half and made his eyes. And... Uh, and thus was birthed Kermit the Frog. Right? And the thing that I love about that story is, you know, Jim's mom, you know, she looked at that jacket and she saw something that just was meant to be thrown away. Right? Something that wasn't worth having. Right? Something worth disregarding and just thrown in the trash. But Jim looked at the same jacket and what Jim saw was something important. Right? Something um, beautiful. Something that he could use. Right, and I don't know where you're at this morning and how this message strikes you. I don't know who you see when you look in the mirror or whether you like what you see when you look in the mirror. And for you, you might feel like something that's worthy to be thrown out, disregarded. Right? But you just need to know right, that many of the things that God, that the world would, would throw away, God sees something to be redeemed. Right? What the world disregards is trash, something to be thrown out. Right? God sees something that is worthy of his love, something that can be saved. And something that can be used. All right, and you might be tempted to say, Aaron, you, you don't know, skeletons in my closet. All right, it's all great that you threaten to punch kids volunteers, but I've done a lot worse. My skeletons are not your skeletons. You know, I love Max Licato. He, he writes about a guy by the name of Jeffrey Dahmer. You guys remember Jeffrey Dahmer? All right, Jeffrey Dahmer was a serial killer, serial rapist, and a cannibal. Killed 17 people, did some horrendous things. Right, in fact, when he was arrested, uh, he killed 17 people. 11 of those corpses were found in his apartment. Right, Jeffrey Dahmer did some things that are, that are unthinkable. And Max Ocato writes, he says, you know, what disturbs me most about Jeffrey Dahmer, it's not his acts, it's not his trail, and not his punishment, but it's his conversion. Months before an inmate murdered him, Jeffrey Dahmer became a Christian. He said he repented. He said he was sorry for everything he had done. He was profoundly sorry. He put his faith in Christ. He was baptized in prison. 
In prison, he started life over. He began to read Christian books and attending chapel. Sins washed. Soul cleansed. Past forgiven. He said, that troubles me. It shouldn't, but it does. Grace for a cannibal. Yet this is how radical God's grace is. I read that, I hear that story, and I think, what kind of God is this? A very good one. A God who takes grace very, very seriously. A God truly of second chances. A God who invites us to be a part of something that is so different than what we see around us. A people smothered in grace, covered to extend, called to extend grace to one another and to this world. A beloved people, a forgiven people, a people invited to a community of redeemed ragamuffins and sinful saints. A people with a second chance. Right? What saves you is, is not the quality of your faith. It's not the size of your faith. It's simply the object of your faith. Right? And that's what this series, the book of Galatians, this is what the Bible is all about. Right? So as we wrap up this series, and band, you can come on up. Uh, we want to give you a chance to physically respond. And we don't, we don't do this a whole lot at Mosaic because uh, it can probably be overdone. Um, and we try to mix it up. But it's very easy, as you know, to walk in on a Sunday morning and sing some songs and listen to a dork like me go on for 30 minutes and walk out and never really respond, never really own what's being said, never make it personal. Right, but this morning we want to give you a chance to make it personal. Right, and so throughout the series, uh, this board over here, this people have a second chance. We've had photos on it. It's been like this kind of symbol and center of identity for us throughout the people have a second chance series. And this morning, right, as you're just sitting in that chair and, and listening and pondering all of this, um, if this is something that you want to be a part of, this people of the second chance, be a person of a second chance, covered in grace, walking in grace, uh, I want to encourage you during this time, the band's going to jam and we're going to sing. And during this time, um, I just want to encourage you to come and write your name on that board. Right? And in doing that, quite simply, all you're saying is you're staking your claim and saying, I am a person of the second chance. I am making Jesus the object of my faith. And for some of you, this might be the very first time you've ever done that. All right? And so this is a huge moment. And, and if you choose to write your name on that board for the first time and make Jesus the object of your faith for the first time, um, we would love to know uh, and just to answer any questions you have and, and to help you make your, take your first steps as a person with a second chance loved, forgiven, covered in God's grace or maybe for you you made that first decision a long time ago but as you're sitting here you know like there's an area of your life where you know that you've been placing your faith your trust in other things and it's not Jesus right? and maybe that's a relationship right? maybe that's uh, in comfort and predictability, right? Maybe that's in wealth. Maybe that's in your marriage. Maybe that's in a career, a job, a plan, a dream, right? And you know that Jesus has not been the object of your faith when it comes to that part of your life. And maybe, just maybe, right, you sense that God is calling you to invite Jesus into that area of your life, right, as we look to begin a new year. And if that's you, I'd encourage you to come write your name on the board. Nobody knows what that name symbolizes, but you know. Right, so as we do this, um, if you would, if, let's, let's go ahead and stand. And the band is going to jam. And we're going to enter into a time of response, a time of worship together as a community. Uh, and I just invite you, and God invites you to become a person of second chance.
Lord God, we give you this time. We give you ourselves. We give you this moment. We thank you that the church is not a place for the religiously elite spiritually perfect but a place of grace for sinful saints and so Lord we come before you now and we give you the little bit that we have even if it's just a little faith Lord this morning we are choosing to put that in a big God and we come before you now